You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. It's the MIT Alumni Books Podcast. I'm Joe McGonigal, Director of Alumni Education. And joining me is Dean Carlin, PhD, Class of 02, a professor of economics at Yale University. Dean's new book is Failing in the Field, What We Can Learn When Field Research Goes Wrong, co-authored with Jacob Apple and published this fall by Princeton University Press. Carlin is the founder of Innovations for Poverty Action, a research and policy nonprofit that discovers and promotes effective solutions to global poverty problems. Dean Carlin, thanks for joining me. The book, in collaboration with this co-author, was born out of a failure in the field in Africa a decade ago. So why choose 2016 to publish it? It's been an idea that we had for a while, but you know, needless to say, you're not typically driven to write up all the failures. And I want to be clear, these are not failed development projects where we did an evaluation and we found that something didn't work, because that's actually an important story, and you know, that's generating knowledge, and that's that should be published as a paper. These were projects that got called off halfway through, and there was really no knowledge generated from an academic perspective on the key questions that we set out to ask when we started the project. And so it, it never saw the light of day. And yet when we are out there constantly in the field trying new things, trying new ways of, of collecting data, if we don't collect our failures on the research process, we're not going to learn as well as we could. And so that was basically the, the motivation behind this was to say, let's document some of these. Let's also try to create a little bit more of a culture of sharing these kinds of stories because we're going to all do better in the way we do our research if we're a little bit more open and learning from our failures. You say the, the subject That's need the, not be taboo. It shouldn't be. I mean, obviously, some of these are embarrassing. You know, there's some things in here I, I scratch my head, and it's, and it's embarrassing that we did these things. But like at the, at the end of the day, we, we did them, and... We'd like to see that other people don't do them too. So let's let's go ahead and be candid and talk about them. We, you know, one thing that allows us to do this, to, to be perfectly blunt, is that you know IPA and, and the MIT Jamil Poverty Action Lab, who are it's our sister organization. We we have had um, you know exhilarating successes with some of the studies we've done and seeing the way we've managed to generate important knowledge and that knowledge and those, that evidence has changed the way policies have happened. But you know, too often people get this idea that everything's rosy, and that's not that's not the way the world really works. And so, this is an attempt to kind of document the dark side a little bit and, and show that you know there have been some hiccups along the way, and and we learn and we improve, and and it's part of the journey. You've written plenty about your successes, I'm sure. The, the scale-ups from IPA and JPL have reached over 200 million people. You say. But then again, 2 billion people in the world live on $2 a day, and there's plenty more scaling up that can be done. Absolutely. The book, readers will, will find five chapters on kinds of failure that research projects in randomized control trials will uh, encounter, and then you take us through some, some case studies. Of these kind of wide-scale experiments on curing the ills of poverty around the world. So tell listeners a story of one of these failures in in one of these case studies that you take us through and uh, what was learned from it. One of the earlier ones was in the Philippines. It was actually one of our Philippines and Peru were the first two countries that um, IPA started working in. And the punchline lesson that we learned is it's never quite as easy to set up a randomized trial and adhere to the protocols as you think it is. So we were working with a micro-lending organization, and they wanted to know what happens 
what are the extra benefits one might get if you include business training or health training as part of the weekly meetings in the microcredit program? And this is a very common approach that you see in microcredit in different parts of the world. And yet we didn't really have good evidence about the value of that add-on. And so we worked with this organization and we thought it was going to be fairly simple. We took a list of all of their groups and we randomized them into three piles. Those that get business training, those that get health training, and those that stayed receiving the same services they were currently getting. And they said, okay, this is great. We'll make sure our supervisors know which ones to do which and everything's great. And and, and we did not actually put a staff member on the ground there working with them day in, day out to help make sure that those assignments were actually adhered to. Instead, we just went and spot-checked every so often and give feedback to them about what was happening. The first spot check we did, we found that something like 70%, I forget the exact number, 70% of treatment was getting treated, and about 5% of the control group was getting treated. Now, 70% is not such a bad number because it is, there's a lot of things going on for the group that week. They might ditch the training that week because they're going to need to focus on repayment. The 5% control warned me a little bit more because that's supposed to be zero, and so that means there is a bit of confusion. Maybe a credit officer moved assignments or something like that, and, and, and so maybe you got a little bit of leakage. And a little bit of leakage is okay. You can still do the analysis that's needed as long as you have the distinct difference. But then we talked a lot about, okay, you know, this is good, but, you know, maybe some incentives would be good to put in place to make sure that all the credit officers adhere to the protocols. And this was all done from afar, and that's the theme of the mistake here. This was all being done from afar. And they said, sure, and we said, great. And three months later, we asked, you know, where are, you know, are the incentives in place? And they said, we're working on it. We go back, we do another spot check. And this time, about 35% of the treatment group is getting treated and something like 30% of the control group was getting treated. And that was the end of the study. Luckily, on this one, for what it's worth, we didn't do a baseline. You don't need a baseline when you do a randomized trial. There's some reasons why you might like to have one, but you don't need one. We did actually do this a bit on a bootstrap with the hopes that we would have all this nice evidence of, of a good experiment and then we would be able to raise money for an endline. But we never were obviously able to raise money for an endline when, when there's really no experiment to evaluate. So it never came to fruition and the whole thing got called off. And the lesson learned was put people in the field, make sure that you're working closely with the organization just because it seems simple. From your perspective as a researcher does not mean that it's simple from the organizational perspective about how to adhere to the experimental protocols. You read about technical design flaws, survey and measurement design flaws, uh, low participation rates, inappropriate research settings, all sorts of pitfalls that control trials fall into. You write that failing fast in a study and, and pivoting quickly can be demoralizing for those doing your surveys and your trials. That's right. That's right. You need to, you do need to be self-aware of what's going on. You do need to make sure that you don't fall prey to sunk costs and just kind of refuse to let go and, and just keep pushing and pushing on the project, even if it's a, even if the stars are just not aligned and the organizations are not properly excited, and then it's just not, it's going to be a painful process. And you express your frustration with the publishing industry, journals that have been less prone in the past to publish no-impact studies and uh, studies of failure. Uh, talk about response to the book so far. Is there? Do you see any change in the publishing industry? There has been change, but I want to I want to make an important distinction here. The grumpiness that I have with the publication journals and decisions is not about 
the stuff I was writing about in this book. There's not a single thing I wrote in this book that I think would have realistically been viable for a refereed journal in economics. Because all we ever learned was some methodological points about project management and partner management and technical issues about procedures for running a randomized trial. The part that's a problem is in academia is when there's a good question being asked. I think A is going to cause B. And you go out, you set a test, and it turns out A did not cause B to happen. You get what's called a null result. And then, and then those do have a problem sometimes getting published. And that's a problem because if it's long as it was a good theory and there's a plausible story as to why A should cause B, if you learn that it didn't, that's important. And it's just as important as documenting that it does cause B. And yet that does happen. I had a project in the Philippines. I'll never forget the line from a referee that said, the fundamental problem with this paper is the null result. And yet we had lots of data explaining the null result, mechanisms. We had all sorts of useful ways of understanding why we were not finding results. And it's not to say all journals are like that. There's definitely journals that will and editors and referees that do share my, my sentiments on this. But it is a historical problem across science, not just economics. What ends up happening is we say when you get a statistically significant result, the a lot of times people say, okay, I want to know why. And that's an important part of, of generating the knowledge, just to understand why did that result happen. But for some reason, when we get a null result, the instinct of our profession is to require a higher bar for understanding why. And it shouldn't be a higher bar. We should, in both cases, we want some understanding as to why the result happened or didn't happen. So the understanding the mechanism, the why, is always important. But it's not more important when you get stars on your, on your little coefficients for statistical significance than when you don't. It's always, it's always an important question. But, but it is the case that for some reason our profession tends to, I, in my perception, require a higher bar on the null result. Uh, talk about how your MIT education is alive and well in the writing of this book. I got started running randomized trials and doing field work when I was a grad student at MIT. I'm about to go give a talk at this gathering called FailFest about a project that I did when I was at MIT. I failed. <laughs> but um, and luckily, some did succeed too. So I did get out of MIT to graduate. You know, this is that MIT is where I got my start doing, doing all this research. And to this day, I still collaborate and, and very close to my advisors at, at MIT. And, and a big part of this whole movement is the Jamil Poverty Action Lab has been you know, instrumental in seeing this incredible expansion of people out there in the world gathering evidence to figure out what's working and what's not. It's been exhilarating to be a part of this movement. You sit on the board of uh, JPAL now. Tell alumni uh, something about JPAL they might not understand about its impact or appreciate about its impact. JPAL's vision is to develop a network of researchers that are like-minded who want to go out in developing countries and the United States as well and conduct randomized trials on social problems, social policy whether it's run by a nonprofit, a business, a government. That's the first part of its mission. And the second part is to, to do the right communication, the right scale-up work. I mean, obviously, it's a university. MIT is not going to go and get involved in direct scale-up. 
but we need to be able to communicate the results of the research to the right players to figure out who needs to do what differently and get that information to them. And that policy and communications work is a big part of what we're doing at, at JPAL. And of course, because we are part of university, um, education is a big part of what JPAL is doing as well. Um, executive education in developing countries here in the United States, online courses, things of that nature. Talk about what else needs to be written on the topic of failure in the field. Well, what, what we're hoping to see happen is we, we collaborated with the World Bank's development impact blog so that people can write in their own failures, you know, put in some keywords. And, and our hope is that enough people will start writing some in that it'll become its own little blog and people can have a bit of living history of them so that, you know, when you're doing a project and someone says, you know, I know someone who tried a project like that, it failed, you ought to go read the blog post and there it is. And it has a nice little home where they can all live together. So we're, we're, we're really hoping some others do. I know we've seen a few posts and that's one of the reasons why I'm giving this talk today to try to generate some more enthusiasm with people. We don't want it to be burdensome. That's why we're not making it into a big thing. It's just a blog. But, you know, just write it up. Get it out there. Let people know what happened. And tell me what else you're reading right now. Well, literally at this very moment, well, not literally, I'd be good. Just before the phone call, <laughs> I was reading The Underground Airlines. It's a fiction novel. It's kind of scary. It's a depiction of, of America if the Civil War was um, won by the South, where slavery was still in place in four states. And yet it's set in today's time with all of the social media, and et cetera. The book is Failing in the Field, What We Can Learn When Field Research Goes Wrong. It's Dean Carlin, PhD, class of 02, and it's available at Princeton University Press or at your favorite local bookstore. Dean Carlin, thanks for patching in and telling us about it. Great. Thank you very much.